Welcome to Game and Watch with uh, Aaron and James. I am Aaron. I'm James. This is a podcast where we talk about games we've been gaming and movies and TV shows we've been watching. Today, our topic is Hereditary, a film by Ari Aster. But uh, before we get to that, James, uh, how are you? How you been? I'm pretty good, Aaron. How are you? I'm good. I'm a little tired. Uh, still been unpacking the condo. We're going to uh, Guatemala next week, so I had to have to run around getting COVID tests and doing all different kinds of uh, stuff for that. But I uh, had a good time watching, rewatching Hereditary in preparation for this, and uh, just a little light family horror to I, take my mind off things. I gotta tell you, I am I'm really, really excited to talk about this movie. I love it. I think more and more every time I watch it. Um, it, it is in my opinion, one of the best horror movies to come out in the last 20 to 30 years. Um, it's one of my favorite horror movies of all time. Um, you may remind me at some point of another horror movie that deserves to be in that conversation. That may be true, but that will not stop this one from being in that conversation for me. It's a, it's a, it could be a top five horror movie of all time for me. I agree. Uh, this has instant classic all over it. The first time I saw it, I was profoundly blown away Yep. and immediately wanted to watch it again. And I think it's definitely like some of the best films of all time. Uh, it gets richer and more rewarding with each rewatch. And yeah, I, I fully agree. I think that this yep. will be a film people still watch and talk about, you know, 60 years from now. I really, really hope so. Uh, tell us a little bit about, about this film and how it came to be. So, yeah, this is the directorial debut of Ari Aster. Um, he would also go on to make another horror movie that we might end up covering, Midsommar or oh, Midsummer, we, depending we, on who you, who you ask. We're covering it. Um, this movie was released in 2018. Um, it was, again, his directorial debut, and it has a pretty good cast, um, or at least two really notable people, um, namely Tony Collette and Gabriel Byrne. Um, this movie was produced by Lars Knudsen, and the reason I only bring him up um, is because he notably produced The Witch uh, by Robert Eggers. And not and, because he has a funny name. And not just because he has a funny name, but uh, Robert Eggers is another kind of up-and-coming horror director. Uh, no, I don't know if he would refer to himself as that. Uh, they probably both would resent the term. Um, and... You know, these two guys are making some pretty phenomenal movies. I've, I've loved, they both have two films released. I, I love all four of them. Um, and yeah, so I, you know, well, I, and I, I think the, the umbrella they both fall under, at least at this moment in their careers, is uh, they're both A24 directors. Yes, yes. A24, uh, kind of up and coming, uh, you know, boutique horror studio not horror exclusively but yeah um really really interesting films with some pretty talented writers and directors very much so oh and this movie was also written by Ari Aster I should add yes. that um he is uh oh, the full package you could say <laughs> yeah he's a he's a real he's a real Dame Judi Dench in that way and I would say not you know not to discredit anyone who worked on this movie uh because I, I, you know, this movie is really masterfully put together. But I think it's also worth calling out a cinematographer who, whose name I'm going to butcher. It's Powell Porkazelski. Uh and this this movie, I think, I think you nailed it. I, has some really phenomenal cinematography. 
It does, although uh, from what I read, Ari Aster is responsible for, well, obviously he's the director for quite a, a few shots, but even before like locations are finished scouting he produced uh like a shot script apparently yes um so he had very a very extensive idea of exactly how he wanted everything to look it is the kind of movie that you're watching for the first time or really any time and you can just kind of tell that not only does Ari Aster have a full command of his vision he, he has his fingerprints over everything um you know the director's often sit, you know, in the editing room or, are you know, talking to the cinematographer constantly. And, you know, that's pretty common, but you just can't help but wonder. Like, if you had told me Ari Aster had actually done half the t- cinematography himself, it wouldn't have surprised me. It The film has, and I, I don't, maybe you would be able to uh, kind of put your finger on exactly uh, describing this better than I would, but it just, watching it, it just feels like there is so much tight control yes. over everything in the film. And I, I don't exactly... I can't think of a really good example of what I mean by that, but it just feels masterfully crafted yes. the entire time. I have a note on that, and I'll, I'll lead into it now, I guess, you know, and kind of building off that exactly what you said. Not, there is a, he has this kind of control over every single aspect in this movie. It's one of those things where you feel like every single thing in the frame was put there specifically. Like, if you had told me he was a perfectionist, I would have believed it too. The way every, the way every, the the shots are arranged, the the mise en scène, like the way that the actors are arranged in the set, and like you know, the the arrangement of you know, the, if you have a two shot of two of the actors, you know, how are you arranging them specifically within the frame? Um, the, the this movie plays a has a huge um, miniature aspect. Uh, there's you know, as we'll go into, one of the main characters creates miniatures for a living. There's a there's a lot of that involved. There seems to be such meticulous detail and planning and all of that lends itself to a one of the most perfect commands over tone and tension that I have seen in a horror movie well and the miniature aspect kind of uh, works on a meta level because uh, you know the characters uh, the character works on these miniatures and that's kind of her life and we kind of see the miniatures and access part of the story through the miniatures but, I mean, kind of the sets and the, the cast are kind of Ari Aster's miniatures in a way, too. Yes. It's, it's working on all these kind of levels. And it's funny you say that because he actually did say something along the lines of, um, it's, I gotta find the quote, I'm sorry. Here are my notes. Okay, so he was interviewed and he said, these are people who have no agency. In the end, they are like dolls in a dollhouse. Yeah, yeah, that, exactly. And yep. that makes complete sense. Yep. Um, there was a note I had about the development, but I will actually save it because it makes probably more sense later. Oh, okay. Yeah. So what is your history with this? Oh, actually, before we talk about that, um, we should probably say, and anyone who's seen it, um, I guess we should probably say we're going to talk about, we're going to spoil the movie. Um, oh yeah. It's impossible yeah. not to. And if you haven't seen it, I would highly recommend doing it and then stopping here and then coming back and listening to the rest. Um, this movie was critically acclaimed. Uh, I, I think I maybe back, I, I wish I had done it in advance of this of recording this. Um, but I think there were a couple people who were really sour on it, uh, but it was really few. Well, okay. So that's interesting. And that kind of leads into my own personal history with the movie. Yeah. Because 
uh, I was aware of it coming out. I had seen trailers. Uh, obviously, Ari Aster, this was his debut. He has two semi-famous now uh, student films. Yep. But, you know, I, I didn't know anything about him. I hadn't seen those. Uh, I I just saw the trailer for this film and was mildly intrigued. But a coworker of mine saw it, and she is a big horror movie buff. She she loves horror films, and so I kind of trust her judgment on these things. And I asked her about it, and she said she hated it. Um, she thought it was wow. really stupid. She did not like it. And so I kind of put it out of my mind and then, you know, kind of crossed it off my mental list of films that I wanted to see. I actually wound up sitting down and watching this from beginning to end uh, the afternoon before I saw Midsummer. Huh. Because I saw Midsummer, I saw a poster of a blonde girl wearing a weird Dutch Midsummer dress screaming. Uh, in the theater, and was I was like, hmm, okay, you've got my attention. I watched the trailer. Uh, I was like, okay, I want to see this, but uh, you know, I I haven't seen Hereditary, and I, after I looked up Hereditary and saw that it had a positive critical response, yeah. So I watched Hereditary, and then about an hour later, watched Midsummer back to back, and then have since gone back and rewatched Hereditary multiple times. I think for this show, this was my fifth, maybe or sixth viewing of Hereditary. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in doing research for today, I looked up the you know critical consensus and saw that on um, I believe it was Rotten Tomatoes, the critic score was you know like an A, solid A, mm-hmm. and the audience score I think was a D or a D plus. Doesn't surprise of, me. Yeah, I think a lot of people d- you know didn't really know what to expect with it, uh, and we'll we'll talk about how the movie turns kind of from one genre into another yep. as the plot goes. But I think a lot of people were thrown by that and it was a bit off putting. There's some really fantastical elements, especially yes. at the very end of the film that make sense to me and make sense upon multiple viewings. But I think if you went in expecting like a slasher, you know, yep. nightmare on Elm street or something like that, this isn't it. But also, if you didn't know what you were getting into, the film begins as a real domestic tragedy, and it does not stay that way. So I could see people souring for either reason. Yeah, and and funny you mentioned that. I some of the critical consensus, and even not critical. So when you love something as much as you can love a movie, I, I, as if you're anything like me, you will kind of absorb yourself in not just the critical reception to it, but any anything that's being written about it, even if it's not critical, if it's just an analysis of the movie, you know, I guess there's usually some sort of perspective behind it, you know, whether the person who wrote it liked it or didn't. But I, I, I have, ever since this movie came out, I have been just, I will read anything that anyone has to say about this movie, good or bad. And... One of the most commonly cited things is that people just felt so shitty watching it, which is interesting to me because there are so many horror movies that are like really beloved and have arguably, you know, more upsetting things happen in them and even maybe a higher body count. But I don't think that this is one of the very few horror movies that is played there. It plays out with such relentless dread and tragedy it, it's it's and, and I'll, we could talk a little bit more about it but just to say just a little bit about it there is a lot of horror movies will start out everything's fine you know not overly happy but they're fine you know the there's these, these down moments that kind of lead into even if they're a slow burn Right. I mean, or even the opposite, you know, and I'm thinking of more like popcorn-y type horror films where yeah. 
things are great. You know, the sexy teens are at the lake and everything's <laughs> wonderful. Yeah, exactly. And this movie has none of that. None. It starts with sadness. And even if you're not accustomed yet to the characters, they very quickly establish that sadness and you believe it and you're enveloped in it and you are never allowed to leave. There's no down moment. It's just tragedy snowballing into tragedy, snowballing into complete chaos. Yeah, I mean, the the emotional arc of it is, you know, sadness and then real despair and then kind of confusion and then horror and then it kind of ends with horror and confusion and chaos. Yep. There's no, yeah, there's no like... There's really no bright spot. There's no charming scene where the family, you know, has a good time. Even thinking about something like The Shining, which is also a domestic, uh, you know, tragedy horror film. Mm-hmm. Those characters at least get moments where they're nice to each other. They have little charming moments a little bit. There's nothing like that here. Yep. And I, that's a great comparison, too, because I, I was going to say also that the, the Shining, if anything, came close to to me, to, to maintaining that level of dread. There, there are very few movies that I think do that. Um, the Shining comes close. I agree with you that there's some, like, moments of, of uh, what do you call it, levity? or um... Yeah, not even levity. It's just char- the, uh, the characters aren't constantly either devastated or angry with each other or right. sad. Like... There are scenes where Danny and his mom are, you know, watching TV and right. they share a fun glance. Like, no fun glances are shared here. Right. And, and I think the, the the comparison to this that I was paying attention to also, though, is like, you know, if you are talking about dread and tension that, that is established very early, for one, like, The, the Shining kind of uses its score in a way that this movie I think does that there's this kind of like constant tension and a lot of it's funny a lot of horror movies try to do that with their scores and it's funny they always off they you know they very often employ like you know a violin based score to try to you know constantly maintain that and it's funny how some movies can pull that off and others can't and obviously it's more than just the score it's what's going on on screen but Anyway, the in The Shining, like you know, they have peppered in those moments of dread. There's there's moments triggered by the score at the beginning. There's the whole opening credits to The Shining is very kind of dread filled, <laughs> to so to speak. And you know, you get the moment with Dick Halloran and Danny, and like Dick Halloran's like you know clearly something's not right. Danny knows something's not right from the beginning. Anyway, I could talk about The Shining another time, but you know what I mean. Like there's a there are very few horror movies that do what this movie does, and and maybe it's, I hadn't seen one in a while, um, like this. But it, you know, to give this movie credit where credit is due, it is masterful and it has an incredible command over tone and tension. I agree. When uh, when did you first see it? Did you see it when it came out in theaters, or was that later? I did. This was one of those movies that you know I pay attention to Sundance and I. Sometimes I'll just limit myself to saying I'm just going to see like with the best couple movies that came out of Sundance. And I mean, I would say this is probably one of them. Um, I don't know if it won any awards at Sundance. I forget. But this was, you know, when I hear horror movie critically acclaimed Sundance, I'm immediately interested. And I kept my eye on this and I read, you know, criticism of it, you know, that wasn't plot spoilery and tried to see it as soon as I possibly could. I, I don't know if I saw it on the release date, but I saw it with a friend of mine, and, and this is an ultimate movie to see in theaters. It was one of those kind of movies where you turn to the person next to you and you're just saying, like, what 
the fuck just happened or like just you laughing because you have, you don't know how else to react to some of the things that are happening on screen. Which is exactly, I did, as I said, I saw this at home um, before Midsummer, but I did see Midsummer in theaters and that was my similar experience. Normally, yeah. uh, you know, the theater, everyone is very chatty when a film ends. You know, everyone's talking about the movie or joking or talking about their plans for after the movie. After Midsummer, the entire theater, people, we filed out in dead silence. Yeah. 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 But um, should we start talking about the plot? Yes, we should. All right. So this movie opens with a death. Uh, you don't see it. This is the aftermath of the, what, I guess, would you say the matriarch of the family? Uh, the grandmother, I'll, I'll probably refer to her as the grandmother um, who has died. And her daughter and her family are getting ready for the funeral. And it's very clear from the opening moments that this grandmother had a profound negative impact on this family. And I, I, I still, I was just marveling at how quickly they established that. And, and it's, it's put quite literally uh, by the main character, Annie, the mother in the family, um, that she had a, you know, a difficult relationship with her mother. And it's just she delivers a eulogy at the funeral that immediately grabs you and you think like, oh, my gosh, we're really in for it. There, this this is this family is not normal. Yeah, there. Well, a couple of things about the very beginning. It opens with um, the obituary notice. Right. The mother. Yes. And then immediately cuts to a shot of the treehouse. Um, so it essentially gives it gives away everything yep. within the first like two seconds. If you kind of uh, know what to look for. But it, it the funeral scene f- makes you feel very off put immediately because she mentions that the grandmother had private rituals and secrets and also references that there are so many people there that she had never seen before that she had no idea knew her mother. Yep. So immediately you know something is off about the mother. Something is off about this entire situation. And I like when a movie lets you in just a little bit. Like it's not kind of just leaving you completely in, in the dark waiting to see what is going to happen it, it, it's they tell you immediately that you need to be worried about what's happening right all you know is that there is something wrong it gives you absolutely no clue as to what that is it just lets you know something is wrong yes should we talk about the cast before we get we continue about the about the story i feel like it, it's important to note that again there's some notable actors here most most notably is Tony Collette, who plays Annie, the mother. And she's incredible. I, she should have won an Oscar for this movie. I I, I, I mean, it, I guess it's not really a surprise to me that she wasn't nominated for things like that because most award circuits don't recognize that. She might have even actually been nominated for a Critics' Choice Award for Best Actress. I forget. But she is absolutely incredible in this movie. Uh, she told her agent that she no longer wanted to be in very dark, serious, heavy films and that she wanted to do something more upbeat and comedic. Oh, yeah. And they then found this her this came, right away. They, yeah, this Well, this came along and Ari, <laughs> Ari Aster convinced her to do it because she was kind of uh, hesitant to do a horror film. Yeah. Uh, but just because of all the character work and the range, uh, she agreed to do it. Yeah. And she fully just blows it out of the water in terms of range, in terms of intensity, 
in terms of character turns. It's, I mean, if I were an actor, this would be a role I would, I would really desire. I, w- I would really want to have because it kind of lets you do a little bit of everything. I would too, but I'd be terrified about it. Oh, you know? yeah. I, I mean, it, she carries the entire film. You know, if this were a poor performance, the, the film would collapse around her. Yeah. And I, I think the supporting cast is really strong, too. You have Gabriel Byrne, who is always reliable, but not always reliable to hide his accent. Um, I didn't Irish. think he was. I think, I think we, were, we were supposed to assume that he was Irish. I See, I think he comes off very... And maybe it's just because he speaks so quietly and he sounds like he's completely depressed all the time. Um, but he, I, I, he speaks softly and I thought he was going for American and only occasionally, especially when he raises his voice, does his accent come through, but maybe, maybe he just has a subtle accent that I'm, that I'm just not in tune with. I don't think it matters. I will say, I think, uh, his acting is great. Yes. Uh, Gabriel Byrne is a very good actor. However, I will say, uh, I only really have maybe three points, like weak points of this film. And I think his character is one of them. Interesting. I, I look forward to hearing what you have to say more about that. Um, yeah. They uh, so he plays Annie's husband Steve, and then they have two kids, Charlie and Peter. Charlie, a girl, uh, she's played by Millie Shapiro. She is another one of those elements of the movie where, you know, she's disturbed. I guess could would you say? How would you put it? I mean, we could just, since spoilers are off, we can just say what she is. Sure, go ahead. Uh, I mean, she's possessed by the Demon King Paimon, but <laughs> yeah. he's in the wrong body, so it's fucking her up, presumably. Yes. And that's, I, I think it's to the film's credit that it doesn't really clarify exactly, like, how much is it Charlie? How much is it Paimon? Yeah, and I, I think mean, that's... How much is it both? It's smart. And, it, like, it, you... If you had said, like, if, if the movie never insinuated because i don't it, i mean i guess it does explicitly sort of say it that Pyman is in charlie you would think you know maybe this is just you know a, a, a little girl who has been traumatized by her mother or specifically maybe her grandmother um through either emotional or physical abuse i mean there you would you would be able to sense that something was wrong it kind of works both ways you know you know what i mean like regardless of whether or not she was actually possessed yeah, I, I just think that I think it's an interesting line to walk because it, it raises a lot of questions about Peter at the end. Yes. You know, how much is Peter still Peter? How much is he Pyman? How much is it going to be Peter that's influenced by Pyman? It's, I like that there are no really definitive answers to yeah. that. And yeah, speaking of Peter, he's played by Alex Wolf, uh, who is, I think, at times, and most of the time, absolutely fantastic in this role. Occasionally, I I can't help but wonder if he's overdoing it. There's, we'll talk about it in a little bit more detail, but there's a scene where he seems like he's trying to match Tony Collette's energy and like how freaked out she is and like kind of crying and screaming at the same time. And I just don't, I think he kind of overacts in those moments. But if there's a movie to overact in, uh, it's a very serious <laughs> horror movie. It, yeah, it, it can I, kind uh, of blend right in. I, I did read a fun story about him. He he was very intense. He did want to do a very good job on this film. Uh, there's a story uh, from a scene later okay. that uh, I'll, I'll tell that he he really, really wanted to prove his acting chops in this film. Yeah. And I agree with you. For the most part, I really think he does. Yeah. All right. I think 
Oh, well, I guess the, there's another character played by Anne Dowd. Uh, oh, the character's man. name is Joan. Um, we can't we can't forget Joan. We can't forget about Joan, but I guess we could talk about Joan a little bit more when she comes. I mean, Anne Dowd is always reliable also. she's uh, She kind of appears in a lot of different things. She's one of those people where you're like, I know that actress from somewhere. I, I mean, I think she is number two very close to Toni Collette. I think she is absolutely incredible in this film. Yeah, I could get behind that. Uh, so yeah, we talked about the characters, we talked about the funeral, they, uh, kind of go home and kind of split up and go about their, about their separate ways. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a scene where Tony Collette tucks Charlie into bed. Uh, Charlie is concerned that, you know, what's going to happen when Tony Collette dies, who's going to take care of her. Uh, and Tony Collette kind of mentions briefly, you know, your family will, dad will, Peter will. Um, and then I believe this is where she mentions like, wow, you know, you, you never cried as a baby, you know, never yep. even once again, hinting like that's odd. That's kind of weird. Although we know Charlie is a bit of a weird child. Yeah. And I think that they also is where they start insinuating the impact that the grandmother had on Charlie's life. And we get a little bit more of this information peppered in. But it was, it's very clear that the grandmother had a very heavy hand in raising Charlie, almost in, in so much, very forceful. I did not want Annie to have a huge part in the raising of Charlie. And, you know, at first you don't really know why, but in the end it's very clear that she wants to raise Charlie and have this heavy hand because Charlie has a demon in her. Yeah. We get a scene. Nurturing uh, to- that demon. She is. We get a scene where Tony Collette is going through some of her mother's things, um, and there's a bit of a spooka moment where she thinks her mother is there. One of the best parts of the whole movie, in my opinion. There's there are there are two moments in particular, this and one that we can talk about a little bit later, where it is a it's a master class in I feel like I'm gonna say that a lot, in a scare with zero sound. It's like you know, it's no, it's a jump scare, but there's no, the score doesn't lead you to to feel a certain way or drive you out of your seat. It is just played silently, and it is just terrifying. Uh, I I didn't think about that aspect of of it. I'll have to go back and rewatch it. But in my mind, I think it's masterful because I think that scene uh, does an excellent job of bridging the gap between these kind of two genres: the the domestic tragedy drama. And horror, yeah. Because I think anyone that has gone through a loss, uh, that has had to grieve the death of a loved one, uh, when sometimes when you go through their things or their clothes, or you'll ca- like you'll smell a smell that reminds you of that person, and it will all of a sudden feel like they are in the room with you. Yeah. Um. And and for this in this film, they play it as kind of a, a bit of a jump scare. But in you know in real life that it just feel it can also feel that way as well. But yeah, I think that's a that's a real thing when you're going through grief when you're mm-hmm. looking through your loved ones' things. It feels like there is a presence sometimes, and it's them. And so I, I think it's a this scene is a good marriage of those two things. That's a great point. And you know it's funny I I never thought about it like that. That's pretty beautiful. I I just always looked at this as just. I mean, every time, and it gets me every time. I, I seriously, like, I know it's coming, but it's almost like in the moment, in the few seconds leading up to it, I forget, and it gets me. I, I jump just a little bit, or I'm just, I, I'm just, I was smiling last night when it happened because I just thought it was so perfect. 
Yeah, and then uh, kind of next we get the kids at school. Tell us about their school day. Well, their school day is pretty interesting. Um, Charlie is sitting in class not taking a test because she is creating this sort of... She, she builds these toys out of, well, not just um, inanimate objects, but living things, as we'll find. Um, and in doing so, a and while she's in class, a bird slams into the window uh, and dies, blood splattered on the window. And then later during recess, presumably, she goes out, cuts the bird's head off, and uses it as the head of this toy she's making. I mean, she's DIY, you know? Yeah, you, she's resourceful. She's like a MacGyver. Yeah, <laughs> just like that. Uh, what is, well, what's Peter doing in school? What is he learning about? So you'll have to, I, I, there's a handful of classroom scenes with Peter and I don't want to get them out of order. Uh, I think he is in class probably looking at the, his crush's butt in front of him, right? Uh, it's yeah. And it's like an English class and they're talking about the theme of, they're talking about Greek tragedy and how, uh, I believe it's, uh, Hercules or Heracles. Uh, he's kind of trapped by his fate, that there's no escaping his fate. Yep, um, which is and, very apropos. Right, and when you're watching this the first time, it just, you know, it just it's a school scene where Peter is looking at a girl's butt and talks about smoking weed later with his friend. Yep. But upon viewing this multiple times, you realize, oh, no, they're talking about the entire film. Peter can't escape his fate either. Yeah, and, you know, it, I'm going to go back just a little bit because we're going to be talking throughout about signs of what the movie is leading to that are kind of peppered throughout. And, and and the movie isn't always very subtle with them either. Like it does it again. It does a great job of setting the stage right away that something is clearly not right from the very beginning. And it does it through the score, which is again, great. Um, and it does it through very obvious, almost comically obvious, like um, bad omens uh, for the audience. And in, Going backpedaling really, really quick. Before, right, about before this scene, there is the funeral scene uh, for the grandmother, and Charlie is looking at the grandmother's corpse, and there is a grinning, like bald man standing in the corner of the funeral room, and he's just staring at her. And it, and I, it's funny because he's just grinning. And I mean, it's creepy, but it's also kind of funny. Maybe I find it funny because I know how it ends. Um, and so that's. We're going to see some people pop in throughout. I mean, Joan is one of them who have a history or an implied history with the grandmother and have seemed to have a very big interest in Charlie and then later in Peter. Yeah, it's just there are all these moments of like subtle offness and none of them by themselves are enough to make any of the characters kind of jump up and go, what are you doing? Or what's happening? Right. Um, it's just enough for both them and you as the audience to be like, Oh, that's kind of makes me creeped out. Right. Um, and speaking the- of being creeped out, uh, if we could move forward a little bit. Yeah. Um, so they get a call from the cemetery that Gabriel Byrne answers. Yes. Um, and we'll, we'll camp out on Gabriel Byrne right now and I can kind of show sure. you my issues with him. But what I do love about this scene is uh, the only we only hear his end of the conversation from uh, the cemetery, and it's just Gabriel Byrne kind of nodding and saying, "Desecrated." What does that mean? Mm-hmm. And it's such a succinct, clear way uh, to immediately tell you everything that's happening in like just you know a couple of words. Yep. Like, 
The grandmother's grave has been desecrated. She's been dug up. Who would do that? Why would it raises a million questions? Who yep. would do that? Why would do that? The, my other favorite part that I noticed uh, watching it today uh, is later uh, a beat later he goes, but it's only been a week. Yeah, and I've never thought about that before. But it immediately again in just the span of a few words tells you everything you need to know about the grandmother. Yep, Gabriel Byrne isn't surprised that it got desecrated. He's just surprised that it took someone that short a time. Right. So without even meeting the grandmother, we we get a really clear picture that she was an extremely influential toxic, influential yeah. person uh, for whatever reason. And in the movie very shortly after this exact moment says even more, let's do it in even more about exactly what's going on because Annie lies to her husband uh, tells him she's going to see a movie and goes to grief counseling. You find out that she started going to grief counseling um, for the loss of her mother, and she doesn't want to share at first. Um, and then eventually she does, and she shares some pretty traumatic memories, uh, one of which is the suicide of her brother, and where she says that his suicide note blamed their mother for trying to put people inside him. Maybe demons, perhaps. Yeah. I mean, it's funny that I I was so this movie has like this mood that I I found myself completely every time I watch it and especially the first time knowing not knowing what's gonna happen you kind of just let yourself go and just let the movie carry you and it's funny that like the movie can be so blunt about certain things and it just it it's not like it doesn't resonate but it doesn't resonate as much because you're just so engrossed in what's going on. Watching it again, you say it's quite literally talking about the grandmother putting people inside someone. And if you've seen any horror movie before, especially one that involves demons, you should know exactly what's going on, and it should wake you up. But I'm I, I found myself just so purely engrossed in this movie, and just want it let it carry me where it's gonna go. I'll cross that demon bridge when I come to it. Did not give it another <laughs> another thought. Well, I think the credit really goes to, I mean, a combination of uh, the acting, the directing, and the writing uh, in terms of the fact that I think in other less confident horror films, they would have really stung that point. It, like, right. I think to maybe Tony Collette's monologue would have ended with, he killed himself because he said she was trying to put people yep. inside him. Or something like that, where it would really sting it. Yep. Whereas this, it's just something that's mentioned in this, you know, kind of mountain of other information. And she just kind of moves along in a decent clip. And it, it's just lumped in with this other information. It doesn't really stand out. Yeah. She also mentions in that same monologue, uh, just very, again, offhandedly, that her mother had DID. Yep. And she doesn't explain that that means dissociative identity disorder. And if you don't know what DID means watching the film, you would just think, it, you know, it's some condition and she doesn't elaborate. And so you're not, as the viewer, kind of asked to elaborate on it and moves on. But if you know what DID is, it's, you know, dissociative identity disorder, which may or may not even exist. But it's the idea of having multiple personalities or multiple personas within you. And again, the movie is confident enough to not sting it or try and yep. explain what that means. It just goes right along. Um, and it's something you can kind of pick up later. Or for, you know, the very observant people in the audience, they kind of have kind of a clue as to what's going on. Right. And then in addition to that, like where, where it might be a little more subtle in a conversation like this and maybe kind of gloss over it very quickly. It's a little bit more blunt about 
Annie's traumatic memories in the sense that Annie uses her miniatures to replicate traumatic things that are happening to her in addition to kind of building miniatures for her own job. Um, for instance, that there are two particular ones that I noted of very clear traumatic memories she had of her mother. One is, I think it's Annie in bed with uh, presumably Charlie and breastfeeding Charlie and the grandmother is standing right next to her bearing her own breast, almost kind of saying, like, give me the child, I want to breastfeed the child. Which makes sense, obviously, once you realize that Charlie has a demon inside her. Um, and then the other one is the mom standing in her pajamas at the doorway watching Annie and her husband sleep. It's just funny to think that she would make miniatures out of this and not just lose her mind. I was going to say, not like haha funny, more like... It's funny that you, you yeah, know, right. aren't you know, completely insane. Yeah. Uh, I heard there was a bang and party. There is a bang and party. So the next major thing that happens is Peter wants to go to a party. He gets a text, uh, which I laughed at, that says, party tomorrow. Bring your dick. Um, and he... I mean, why... Doesn't he go everywhere with it? You would think so. Um, yeah. He left it at home one time. There, um, So he wants to go to this party, and Annie insists that he bring Charlie, so he does. Uh, he goes to the party. He smokes some weed. He leaves Charlie on his own. He goes off to chase the girl that he has a crush on from his class, and he tells Charlie to go eat some cake. So Charlie do- goes and eats some cake, and we find out that Charlie has eaten cake with, was it peanuts in it? Some kind of nut, and it's it's that they uh, Chekhov's gun that at the beginning of the film at the funeral when Charlie's eating chocolate, uh, Tony Collette's you know says, "Hey, you know, is there are there nuts in there?" Yep. And Gabriel Byrne goes, "No." So they they've set this up. Yep. And now they're paying it off. Yes, and then she goes into anaphylactic shock. Anaphylactic shock. I don't know how to say it. Um, and she goes and finds Peter. Uh, she says that her throat is getting bigger or closing or something of that nature. And Peter grabs her, still high. Um, and puts her in the car and heads to presumably take her to the hospital. And what happens next? Oh, boy. Uh, they get to the hospital and everything's fine. Yep, the end. Uh, no, so they're driving uh, along this like rather desolate road. Uh, they This is the same road they drove in on. Uh, yes. It, it is shown, them driving in. We should mention that uh, there is a symbol uh, that... We see multiple times throughout the film. Uh, the more times you watch it, the more times it will show up. Mm-hmm. It is the symbol of Pyman, um, which you kind of figure out near the end. Uh, we first see it as a necklace worn by the grandmother in her uh, casket. In the casket. Yep. Also, uh, eagle-eyed viewers will notice that that symbol is on a telephone pole uh, yes. that they drive past going to the party. Uh, as... Uh, What's sorry? The sisters Charlie. As Charlie is gasping out the window for fresh air, it is that same telephone pole which decapitates her as they drive by. And I don't know about you, but I would say that this was one of the most shocking scenes I've seen in a movie theater ever. This is this is truly where. So I had been watching the movie, and I didn't know anything about Ari Aster. I had heard mixed things about the film. And I'm watching, and I'm kind of intrigued, but I'm also like, okay, what you know, what's gonna happen? Where is this going? This happens, and it completely unmoored me from anything I thought about, any expectations I had over what was going to happen. Yeah. Um, the intensity of this scene is is really gut wrenching. All the sound cuts out. 
And we're just left with this close-up of Alex Wolf um, kind of in, in real time processing yeah. exactly what happened. And it, it just sits on him for what feels like five minutes. And just on his face, you see him go through just all of, you know, d- denial and yep. grief and just complete catatonia. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's something. Yeah. He, his eyes well up with tears and he's in shock. And after that moment pause, he drives away, gets, takes the car home, slowly gets out, goes to bed and essentially is just like waiting for Annie to find the body the next morning and find it. She does. Well, and and that's my question. And so apparently Ari Astigar got the idea for this from a tr- like a real life incident that happened. Mm-hmm. Um, a guy was, I guess, drunk, and both of them were drunk, and one stuck his head out the window, and a similar thing happened. And his friend was so blacked out that he, you know, passed out in the car and didn't yeah. realize that his his friend's head was knocked off. I I mean, what do you what do you think? Uh, it's the film isn't clear in my mind. He is so, so much in shock yeah. that I don't even think he's consciously deciding anything about, yes. you know, oh, mom's going to find her. I think he just needs to go somewhere to go hide and shut down, and his bed is all he can think to do. And, yeah, I, I don't think in any way, shape, or form he consciously decides. You're right, and I chose my words poorly. Uh, it's just kind of, it's that ends up, ends up what's happening. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't come in and... Say, mom, mom, look what happened. Like he, I, I completely agree with you. He is in complete shock, and he, and his mind tells him the right thing to do is just to go to bed. And he wakes up in the morning, and I think you see him realize, yep, everything that happened last night is real. And here is mom, like getting ready to leave the house, and him just you, the 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 camera is a close up on his face as he's almost just waiting for Annie to find the body and when she finally screams it smash cuts to a disgusting image of the decomposing ant ridden head yep yep ari aster uh when we talk about midsummer there's some moments in that film that just oh boy yeah um he does not shy away from both uh practical effects it should be noted and very viscerally upsetting practical effects yes um, yep, we get to the funeral, um, and kind of the aftermath of that. Um, we get kind of to see everyone's grief. Gabriel Byrne is kind of going through Charlie's things. Annie has taken to sleeping in uh, the treehouse that Charlie would sometimes sleep in, mm-hmm. uh, the treehouse that will become very important later. Peter is not doing well either. We see a scene of him smoking weed with his friends. Uh, and he starts to choke um, almost exactly the same way that Charlie was choking. Yep. And in addition to that, he keeps hearing the sound of um, what well, we didn't mention. But Charlie would do these like tongue clucks, clicks yes. or tongue clucks throughout the movie. Yeah. And he's um, P- Peter just starts being plagued with imagining her doing that. 
Yeah, and so Annie's grief, besides sleeping in Charlie's house, she has decided to return to uh, the support group. Enter Joan, a lovely oh woman with no yeah. sinister tell, motives. Please, please. Uh, yeah, tell us about Joan. And I, I have a question about Joan that I've that I've always thought about, um, and I would like to hear your thoughts. Sure. So Joan, so Annie goes to grief counseling, and she kind of thinks about it for a second. She is about to go in, and she decides not to. And as she's pulling the car away, Joan kind of waves her down and says, hey, Annie, 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 you know, um, stop. And Joan says, you know, I'm here because I think it's her son died. You can't really believe anything Joan says. Well, uh, okay, so she says uh, her son and her grandson have drowned. Yes. Yes. And so, okay, so this is my question. And knowing what we know now about Joan, mm -hmm. uh, that she is part of this cult, that she was very close with, uh, Annie's mother. Yep. That their goal is to summon Pyman. Maybe even her number two in this. I, I would right, love to know I, the hierarchy of this cult. Right, 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 right. Uh, my question was, uh, there are a couple possibilities. Sure. One, yes, Joan is lying uh, that she has not suffered any kind of grief or loss. My thought, though, possibility two is that maybe she this truly happened, that mm -hmm. her son and grandson drowned. But my thought was, what if to be part of this and to accept Pyman's power and to be in this group, you have to sacrifice people. And my thought was, what if she, she killed or was it like, she killed her son and grandson and she truly is in grief, but in her mind, because she's part of this group and they have these really sick, twisted motives, like she is truly grieving, but it's also for this like higher power and purpose uh, and they kind of were as a sacrifice. There's no, there's no evidence to suggest anything either which way. I just think it's interesting to think about. There isn't, and I read a similar theory, or maybe the even exact type of theory, and I, I actually buy into that completely. I think there's a lot of talk about sacrifice. I mean, even in the, there's a note that the grandmother leaves at the very beginning of the movie for Annie, something along the lines of like, you know, I'm sorry, essentially apologizing for years of trauma and saying like, as you know, like this will all be worth it. She might even say like the sacrifice will, will be worth it. And I, it, you know, it's not just a sacrifice of what happened. It's, it's almost like the grandmother saying things are going to get really bad right now, um, but it's all going to be worth it. All of your sacrifices will be worth it. So I totally buy into the fact that multiple different forms of sacrifice have to happen. And, and the fact that Joan may have had to sacrifice her own family, I, that seems totally possible to me. Yeah, and at this point, Annie kind of rebuffs Joan's advances. Yeah. Um, we see Annie, uh, there's a lot of tension between her and Gabriel Byrne. I'm sorry, I, I never remember Steve. his character's name. Steve. Yep. Steve? Really? Steve? I know, right? Uh, I just think of him as Gabriel Byrne. Yeah. Uh, we see there's increasing tension between them. Annie has taken to, again, sleeping in the treehouse, and he's kind of like, okay, whatever. Uh, we see that Peter's also having trouble sleeping. Um, and then, you know, we also see that Annie is kind of working on her miniatures. Yes. Um, and I, I think probably the next major thing, unless I'm forgetting something that happens is Joan approaches Annie. Well, they meet, so they meet at Joan's apartment. It seems like a prearranged. Right. Thing. I mean, she just kind of, she approaches her with the idea of performing a seance to speak with Charlie. She insists that. Charlie may not be actually dead, and Joan says, here's a way that you can speak with her. You can summon Charlie. And, you know, uh, 
Joan performs this seance with Annie uh, to speak with her, I think her son or her grandson. Her, her grandson. Her grandson. Yeah. And it freaks Annie out, obviously. I think I... And this is another one of those countless moments where Tony Collette is just... I don't know what kind of direction she got. I don't know what headspace you have to get in for just a simple moment of pretend, like, be shocked that there's a ghost. But I feel like she nails that. She nails the fear and the shock that you that you would have to that you would exhibit in real life if you were to witness these things. Well, and kind of the weird denial of like her her reaction after all of that to you know ghosts are real and seances are real is I gotta go. Yeah, like, yeah. She just she can't she it's so outside of her realm of experiences. It's it's kind of a form of denial that she just can't even be there anymore. Yep, but then- um it. Go ahead. She very quickly accepts the seance and decides to make her family do it. Well, and let's, what does Joan tell her about, what What are Joan's instructions? Oh, she tells Annie that every single one of the people in her family need to be there. Is that what you're referring to? Yes. Although, now that I think about it, I think we're mixing up uh, a Joan-Annie scene. Uh, I think before oh, you're, when she scene, meets her at the at the car outside yeah, the store before before the scene we're talking about we have to talk about the dinner scene oh you're right yeah so uh, she does meet Joan and they they, do, they talk about grief uh, but there's a scene before the scene we're talking about where the family is at dinner uh, there's already a scene where Gabriel Byrne is kind of pissed off that Annie is uh, creating a uh, miniature of the accident. And in her mind, she's like, no, why would, you know, this isn't going to upset Peter. This is, you know, for me, et cetera, et cetera. Gabriel mm-hmm. Byrne is like, you know, you're crazy. Of course, this isn't going to upset him. They're at dinner and there's kind of a huge blowout between Tony Collette and uh, Alex Wolf, uh, Peter, because in Tony Collette's mind, he will not accept uh, responsibility for what he's done. And in his mind, you know, she hates him and blames him for this whole thing. Uh, and Gabriel Byrne is kind of stuck in the middle, trying to keep the peace between them. Yeah. And this is a phenomenal piece of acting from Toni Collette. Um, she she really, you can see kind of the raw intensity of everything she has to go through. She lost her daughter. She still has this son who is essentially responsible for her daughter's death, but also it was sort of an accident. And she has to both be infuriated with him, mm-hmm. but also reassure him that uh, she does still love him. And you also kind of find out a little bit later through it, sort of a dream, like a nightmare sequence. But I think it rings true anyway. It's you know, it's not. This is actual truth that she, her dream self, is speaking. But Peter in a dream asks her, "Why are you scared of me?" And she said, "I didn't want to be a mom. I tried to stop it. I tried to have a miscarriage." And so very clearly there is some, she, she is not as much of a fan of Peter. No, 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 no. And there was tension between them, you know, the whole time. Yeah. Um, so then we get to the Joan scene yes. and those instructions, which were what? To have everyone in your family at the seance. Everyone had to be there. Right. So uh, we get this dream scene. Tony Collette wakes up uh, from it and is like, hey, guys, we need to throw ourselves a seance. Yep. Uh, and Gabriel Byrne and Alex Wolf are very confused by this. Uh, but what winds up happening? Well, first, I want to mention that I love Gabriel Byrne's uh, acting. He has to act a lot of the I know you don't always like him throughout this movie, but I think he does the whole this is just fucking ridiculous type attitude. Like I'm like he he's his patience is wearing thin. 
Well, okay, and we may as well talk about it now sure. because it, my issue isn't with his acting. I think he's great. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he acts his part extremely well. I think Gabriel Byrne is a phenomenal actor. My problem is his role in the film is to be the skeptic, right? And I was thinking about it, and I'm yeah. like, huh, well, you know, in a story like this, you kind of need a character to be the skeptic. Mm-hmm. And then, upon further reflection, I realized, no, you don't. You really don't. Because, for a number of reasons. The first being, um, the skeptical character is necessary in a film where you are questioning whether what is happening is real or not. Because the skeptic gives you the kind of the counter-argument. So imagine this film in which right now we don't really know, uh, you know, if if the ghosts and spooks are real. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do. You know, we, we've seen, based on everything that's been happening, based on Peter choking the way Charlie choked, based on uh, these, you know, her seeing the mother in, you know, upstairs in the attic. We as the audience know this is not in anyone's head. Right. There is There is something going on. So to have a character kind of act as the skeptic is pointless because, you know, there's nothing to be skeptical about. We get it. We know there's a ghost. Um, I think if this was a film where, uh, if the film was ultimately about, you know, to give you an example. So the movie The Witch, right? Yep. So the movie The Witch, except for one shot of The Witch before the end, one shot of The Witch being very, you know, gross and disgusting, we don't get any evidence that The Witch is real. Right. So to have characters be skeptical of the fact that a witch exists works in that film. And when I watched that film the first time, the whole time I was like, oh, at the end, they're going to realize there was no witch. And they were all turning on each other for no reason. And it's going to be this, you know, domestic horror. Well, what do you make of the scene where the boy is lost in the forest and a presumably like a witch quite literally comes up to him and grabs him? I mean, we we don't know that that's when I first saw that I was like that's in his head, yeah. or you know I was I was thinking you know maybe it was going to be revealed that they ate uh, bread with you know mold on it that was driving them crazy or mm-hmm. something you know there there could be things but my point is that a skeptic works in a film when the audience also wants to be skeptical of what's going on as like a mouthpiece of the audience. It just it's it's kind of like the Skyler in Breaking Bad. Mm-hmm. Like we know that Skyler is going to discover that Walt cooks meth. Like th- we just know it. So it kind of sucks a lot of her, um, like the point of her character. The the I don't know how to put it exactly, but I think Gabriel Byrne would have been better served, and I think the plot would have been better served if what if Gabriel Byrne just this entire film, instead of being the put together skeptic, he was also becoming unhinged in different ways. And I think that would then create suspicion in the audience's mind of like, is Gabriel Byrne doing this stuff? If there's, if there's a weird cult or if there's someone nefarious, like doing all these things to Peter and Annie, could it be Gabriel Byrne? See, I disagree. I think that his purpose, and I don't, and I don't even look at it as, He's the skeptic. I guess he's someone there. He, he serves a very simple purpose. I don't think he's meant to have much depth, but he's there to react to Tony Collette. I mean, I guess Peter serves that purpose too, but I, I think it is, I, I find it fascinating to see the, like, what is the husband, how is he going to react to all this happening? You can, I think it's, an but, inter- but, the, but the thing is, there's no, 
there's no mystery. We know how he's going to react. He's going to be like, what the, what, what is going on? You're insane. Like there's no, every single thing he does is exactly what you would think he does. I still think it lends itself to the tragedy. I mean, maybe even less so to the horror elements. I think that he kind of evokes a lot of that family tragedy aspect. I mean, imagine you are, you're the husband that marries into this family with the crazy grandmother who's in a Satan cult and clearly he's had to, you can, he wears it on his face. Like he is put up with some shit on her side of the family. And it, and it's, it's not like he's at the end of his rope type thing, but you, he is very clearly just tired and he's being supportive as a good husband would be. And tragedy snowballs into another tragedy and it's not like he's just along for the ride. Like he is, it's starting to wear him down. And I think you see that. And I just love his presence. I love seeing, being able to see him react to the, what's going on around him. And I think Peter and Annie are enough of the of what's of the craziness that's going on. Like I, I like Steve just being Steve, just being the husband, and just being there to react. Yeah, I, I suppose. I just, I feel like, um, I don't know. I feel like I, I I saw him as the the character who it felt like must be the voice of skepticism in all of this. And watching it, I kind of thought there is no need for skepticism mm-hmm. because we as the audience know this is real and yeah. we know something weird is going on. And so every time you're like, oh, God damn it, Annie, this is crazy. In my head, I'm like, well, we all know it's not crazy. Yeah. And we, so it's, I don't know. I, I found him, not him. I found his character mm. just a little tiresome. I, I just wish they had done more interesting things with him, I guess. Because I, I do like Gabriel Byrne. I think he's yeah. great. This this movie really doesn't lean heavily into horror movie tropes, even though it has plenty of them. Like, it doesn't. The, the any horror movie trope in this movie like a séance or you know even just the character of the skeptic like i think it doesn't it's not as um overt i mean he of course he is skeptical but i just don't think to me when i'm watching it it's not landing with the kind of impact where i'm like up oh, there's the skeptic character there's your stereotypical skeptic i i i just again i find myself just totally yeah, I mean, he's no agent. Gross in the yeah. lives of these. Yeah, right. But yeah, so anyway. So uh, this next bit is kind of like them unraveling in various different ways. Yeah. Uh, we see uh, Peter at school and he hears the click uh, and kind of asks to leave, but he's, you know, very sweaty and disheveled. Um, we see Annie getting a call from uh, the art gallery where she is supposed to be working on a presentation or not presentation. Um, they're doing a full kind of showcase of her work and she's not really yep. doing anything for it. She's actually working on a miniature of the funeral home. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we kind of get, uh, again, more characters just kind of grieving in various ways. And he finds, um, she hears like writing in Charlie's sketchbook and s- sees a bunch of pictures of Peter with his eyes crossed out, crying and scared and sad. That freaks her out. Yeah. um, Things just really start going to shit. Things start ramping up. Uh, She goes back to Joan's house, uh, and there's a shot. She knows something is kind of creepy and wrong. 
Um, and uh, we get the shot from inside Joan's house where we see there's this weird kind of altar with a picture of Peter in the middle. Yeah. Notably, when Annie walks down the hallway, the camera does this kind of swing shot where it starts upside down and then follows the person walking under it and follows her going down. And that exact same shot's in the first time we see the car driving in uh, Midsummer. Midsummer. Yeah. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, she noticed uh, Peter is eating lunch at school where we see um, Joan kind of just yelling at him. Yeah, and uh, she, she says, uh, I forget exactly what she says. Uh, I cast you out, Peter. Oh, yeah. In the na- yeah, yeah. I cast you out. Presumably cast you to out. awaken Pyman. Payment. Right, or, yeah, to suppress Peter's uh, kind of spirit or personality. Yes. Uh, it cuts to Annie kind of connecting the dots because Joan has a similar, uh, like, um, place uh, floor mat placement. Yes. Uh, floor she, mats. She recognized that... her mom's, like, cross-stitching or, or whatnot. Yeah. And here's where my other, kind of my other bugbear with the, the film comes in. Sure. So this is a horror movie trope. Uh, it's where, you know, the character finds the book that explains everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, or finds the one thing that kind of ties everything together. So Tony Collette finds, uh, you know, her mother's box of things and finds books about demons and flips to a page about Pyman. Uh, where we see a symbol, and there's kind of a description of him, that he's one of the kings of hell. She flips through one of her mom's uh, picture books. Uh, or not, that makes it sound like her mom was Dr. Seuss. Uh, <laughs> one of her mom's photo albums. Uh, Probably just as racist, though. I would, I, you know, I would love to read uh, Annie's mother's uh, picture books. They would Damn. be they would be wild. <laughs> um, but he kind of finds a photo album, and... Uh, like a group of people celebrating various things it's very confusing there's there's a picture of her mother in like a white dress on her knees like and people showering her in coins and then it gets to this picture of her mother and joan a very chummy kind of like hugging each other Mm -hmm. so annie realizes that whatever is going on joan has been in it from day one joan knew her mother and my only issue with this is they have to convey this information very quickly in a very visual way. You know, this isn't a novel, it's a movie, but it just, it just feels so haphazard in that you could have just looked at this at any time if you were Annie and their whole plan, it could have fallen apart if Annie just decided to flip through this book at any other time for all, uh, Joan knows Annie could have already looked at that photo album and seen her with her mother you know what i mean like i have a note the, that the, says that i said why how has annie not gone through her mother's stuff already yeah yeah Exclamation to, me point. That, to me that that, that you know this this film even though it's a, it's a very effective horror film it defies a lot of those tropes yeah. in many ways as you said i just thought this was and again i get it it's a film they have to you know show you a lot of information in really a succinct way yeah but watching it, I'm just like, if she flipped through that book, you know, like two days ago, none of this would happen. You know, okay, fine. I guess I can walk back what I said a little bit about the tropes because you're right. I think this one lands a little bit more overtly than any of the others. The whole, like, a panically, in the panic, like, looking through, you know, oh my God, like, I got to look through all this stuff that explains everything, like the, the, the book, right? It, it's very, like, it, it is very, very, very overt. And you you can't help but wonder if maybe it would have been better for Annie to maybe notice a picture like on her mom's nightstand or something that had Joan or like maybe Joan in the background and she sees that and then maybe she starts putting the other like 
cult stuff together on her own without having to read in a book that quite literally there is a demon named Pyman who prefers a male's body, you know? Yeah, and again, it's the kind of thing where, like, I think if this were a novel instead of a film, I think they could, you know, do all those things. They could stretch it out and do all those things uh, maybe in a more effective way. But yeah. it's a visual medium. They they kind of have to, unless they want to have her sit down with someone who will, you know, explain, like, well, ancient lore tells a part, which would be equally ridiculous uh, yeah. and, you know, take a while. I You know, it for what it is, I think it's fine. Uh, I think they do a good job. You know, her her reaction is appropriately like horrified. Tony Collette's giving it one hundred and ten percent. Yep. The score is going overdrive to make you feel this horrifying sense of dread. Yep. But yeah, but after you've seen the movie a couple times, you kind of zoom out and you're like, a picture book or like a photo album. Like she could have flipped through that. You know, like a week before. Yep. It's there. The the cult's entire evil plan could have fallen apart if she was even mildly curious about her mom's things. Yeah. And I would say that this, that is the moment where things fully start going bananas because while this is happening, and I think they cross cut between the two. So Annie go, goes upstairs and finds her mom. Well, not even upstairs to, to, to the, the attic. To the attic. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's not, it's not an area where they would normally go. Yes. Um, Annie finds her mom's decapitated body with these, sit with that symbol again on the wall written in blood, presumably blood, blood, um, Meanwhile, at P- at at Peter school, uh, yeah, at school, Peter uh, Peter's favorite hangout. Yeah, uh, Peter uh, looks and sees his own reflection grinning at him, and there is a similar. Um, we see this a little bit earlier with Charlie too. There was a light. I think kind of the presence of Pyman is supposed to be represented by a little flutter of light. So th- yeah, well, why don't we just get that out of the way? Because that's kind of my third bugbear about the movie. Okay, I think it. I think. I don't think we need it. I, I, I think it's too much. I think... I agree. Um, in terms of hammering you over the head on things, I think this film is subtle in a lot of ways. I think the light is not. And I, I don't... I, I think it takes away, especially at the end. I think it's kind of silly. I, I don't think we need the light to infer exactly what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, tell us what Peter does. So Peter kind of goes into this like catatonic state somewhat he like raises his hand in the air but it's not like it, like he's his limbs are being bent in a way they're it's not almost like he's to. having a seizure yeah and like one of his eyes is bloodshot he's kind of drooling and he slams his head into the desk i think twice breaks his nose and then wakes up i guess on the ground kind of and starts screaming so yeah this is uh the part that i was referencing earlier Apparently, uh, Jack Wolf wanted to break his nose for real Alex by slamming. Wolf. I'm sorry, Alex Wolf <laughs> wanted to break his nose for real by slamming it uh, against the desk. And Ari Aster wisely told him, "Yeah, no, yeah. you don't have to do that." Yeah. Um, and the desk was foam padding. Did you read this? I uh, no, I, I just I, so not surprised. So, Ari Aster was like, "Dude." Come on. Yeah. So Ari Aster was like, no, no, no. Thank you. Thank you. But no, you don't have to do that. We're going to make, uh, we're going to have the desk be foam padded. So you, you won't have to break your nose. However, uh, he, sorry, Alex Wolf. Alex Wolf. Yeah. What did I call him? Uh, Nat Wolf. <laughs> Nat- oh, wait. No, that's because Alex Wolf has a brother named Nat Wolf. Oh, okay. Okay. Alex Wolf. Sorry. So Alex Wolf still, you know, wanted to give 110% for this scene. And so he, you know, kind of threw himself at the desk, even though he knew it was padded. 
However, what neither Ari Aster knew nor Alex Wolf knew is that they only padded the top half of the desk where his nose would hit. They did oh not pad. They did not pad the bottom half. I had no idea. So while he did not break his nose, he did dislocate his jaw. Holy shit! Yeah. Wait, wait. Uh, so when he was screaming, was his jaw dislocated? I don't think so because that's they cut to him alone on the uh, floor. I don't. So I don't think so. I think it was probably one of those things where immediately after you know the scene where he slams his head on the desk, he probably started screaming and freaking out. Uh, you know, but I don't think yeah. he as the audience. Got or just like that. an earlier take of it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, I mean, he, he truly, he truly did want to give you know one hundred and ten percent to his character. Good for him. Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, Steve is called to go pick Peter up and he's driving Peter home. And I just, I want to note really quickly that Steve, while waiting at the traffic light, finally breaks and he just cries. I'm sorry, who waiting at the traffic light? Steve. Steve. Oh, oh, Steve. What? What? I'm sorry. I just think the Steve is such a stupid name. Oh, like I just want to call him Gabriel Byrne. Yeah. Why didn't they just name him Gabriel? Steve. I, you're God, right. it's so stupid. Steve is a little silly of a name. Steve. But Steve finally Steve. breaks and cries, and I I think that's a great moment. And he's very clearly just fed up with this shit. Yeah, he's he, this is a step beyond for him. Yeah, and what's kind of follows then? You know, Peter is like brought into bed. And Annie is in full freakout mode, tells Peter or Steve to go look at his mother's corpse. And uh, her just, mother's corpse. Her, sorry, it her, be, it'd be quite a twist if there was also his mother's <laughs> corpse up there. His mother's corpse. Yeah. And just this whole moment. I mean, she she does some great acting a little bit later, too, even just kind of the possessed state that she ends up in. But this is probably the best Tony Collette acting in a in the movie where she has to play freaked out um and also it's like i love you so much steve you're you're the light of my life you know it's i can't imagine it's easy playing someone who's trying to process all these crazy things at once trying to make everyone think you're not crazy and you're also simultaneously so worried about your family and it's funny because when i say that out loud it sounds like that's what a ton of horror movie actors and actresses have had to do especially women because they usually end up playing like a horror movie character where no one believes them when they say something well and 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 that's the thing too it's like it's four things at once and the other one is like pulling it together enough to try and sound rational even though you what you're saying isn't and you kind of still are not rational like it's yeah yeah it's like five different things at once again like this is in terms of acting this is crazy this is like gold medal like you know olympian athlete uh, level acting. It's a character that a lot of people in history have been asked to play, or like in this moment have asked to play a scene like this, but she just does it so much better than I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. Um, so she begs him to throw the book in the fire. And we had seen a scene earlier where she tries to burn the book and it sets her sleeve. The book fire. being the sketchbook, Charlie's sketchbook. Correct. And this is the question I'm going to ask you. Okay. Um, do you think that Tony Collette, a part of her, knows exactly what's going to happen? Wow, I had not ever thought of that before. Um, maybe. Because how could she, how, in some part of her mind, how could she not know? Right, she, I mean, she was, she caught on fire. She, I mean, she's very convincing in how she says, it can't be me. 
But right in terms know, of it, it can't be me who dies. She is maybe. I, I could not. I would not be surprised because you get a sense throughout the whole movie that she is just looking for a release out of this. And I could see her while she doesn't want to necessarily die. I mean, although she does, I guess earlier say she just wants to die when Charlie dies. But I could see her kind of throwing caution to the wind, even though the kind of the risks have entered her entered her mind. She's just willingly ignoring it. Hoping for the best. Yeah, so what does happen to old old Steve? He, well, it gets thrown in. She He refuses to do it, uh, and then she throws it in, and then he catches on fire and burns to death. Right, but kind of before that, he, oh. essentially, he essentially tells her, like, I'm I'm done. It, I, I'm it, done with this, also, I'm done with you. Right, and he accuses her of being the one to dig up his own, or her own mother's corpse. He, he blames her for all that. And actually... If you want to talk about things about Steve that I don't like, that's probably the one thing. I don't totally buy that, like, he's skeptical and he doesn't believe the things that are going on, but I just still have a hard time believing that he would jump to the conclusion of her doing all these horrible things. But Well, you know, and, and that's where that's where I kind of got the idea of what if, instead of Steve being, like, the stoic father, what if Steve had also been unraveling in his own way and at this point in the film, when we see the headless mother and we kind of see all these weird things going on, that we would, he would also be suspect. Hmm. And we would kind of be like, was it him? And then, you know, when he throws the book in, he sets on fire and we're like, okay, well, obviously it can't be him because if, you know, something's going on, he wouldn't let himself get started on fire. But hmm. again, I'll put, I'll put that away. I just, it was how I may have done it. Mr. <laughs> Astor chose a different direction. But. <laughs> He should have consulted you first. Yeah, yeah. And then we we cut to nighttime, and apparently uh, our boy Peter is a very heavy sleeper because he does not wake up uh, through any of that. Well, yeah, that and now we get my favorite shot of the whole movie, my favorite moment of the entire movie, and the other example that I'm thinking of in terms of like a good use or perfect use of horror with no music because the... Camera starts on him. He finally wakes up. The camera sort of zooms out or pans up. I forget which it does or tilts up, I mean. Um, And we see Annie, clearly possessed, very faintly. We we don't see her completely clearly uh, in the corner of the ceiling, (laughs) like half on the wall, half on the ceiling. Yeah. And I remember in the theater, someone just said, oh, my God. (laughs) <laughs> and I, I just, I, the whole, you could hear like people whispering in the theater, like, Oh my God, what's it? Holy shit. And that, and that's just what I live for in watching horror movies. I want that so badly. And I, and it is, uh, chef's kiss. It's perfect. There's it's, no, there's no musical cue for you to be shocked at that. There's no, like he doesn't realize it right away. It's another one of those perfect, like, you know, what's happening before the character in the movie does. It's, it's, it's incredible. So I'm going to, I'm actually going to disagree with you. I, I think, I think it's good. I think it's really good. I think on a technical level, it, it, the, the way they pan up, the way they, they, they focus and, you know, defocus to, to get it is all great. However, I will say I, I've seen this before and you've seen this before, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. You've seen horror movies where it's like, oh, the creepy monster is on the ceiling, you know? Yeah. I think, I think this is the five star version of that. However... What happens immediately after, I've never seen before, and freaked me out probably ten times more. 
Tell us about it. Peter doesn't see his mother. Yeah. Because she's behind him on the ceiling. He looks over and it pans to a completely nude man. Yes. Standing in a darkened doorway, just grinning at Peter silently. This freaked me out. Me too. So much. Yep. Um, and that, this begins kind of Peter's flight, uh, through the house to the attic. He has no idea what's going on. He has seen his father's burned body, has seen this naked man. And there's a naked woman hiding behind one of the little like stone, um, wood pillars. I didn't notice. I don't think I noticed her the first time I watched the movie, but there's right when he first gets up. I mean, because obviously he sees a couple more of them later before he jumps out the window, but there is one kind of hidden behind like a, uh, uh, like a pillar or whatever. Yes. Yeah. And yeah, we'll see more of them later. They're, they're the cultists. Uh, they have shown up. They are all nude. Peter runs into the attic, which is now lit with candles and they're, you know, like various, uh, like ritualistic things. There's a picture of him with his eyes out. Um, you know, which is the same as the, the sketches that Charlie has been making. Mm-hmm. Um, and it looks like Annie's caught up with him. Uh, cause, uh, what's she up to? Well, she's on the ceiling, uh, floating like right near the, the roof. Um, and is, uh, you know, cutting her own head off with piano wire. Yeah, she really is. Uh, and she's not doing it slowly. No. Or, no, no, she is sawing away. And, you know, it's funny that this, I mean, it's so gruesome. But I, I just to echo what you were saying before, I, I completely agree. You're right. We've seen that shot of someone on the ceiling before. It is a five-star version of it. I still think that that was, especially because it's, despite the fact that everything's going crazy, it's still a little bit of a sharp contrast. We don't, like, see Annie slowly becoming like possessed it's no, just it's just I, cut I, to him and there she is and it was just so jarring yeah and I, I i think you're right i think that's to the film's credit i think it's it works much better but that you way, are that we just yeah absolutely right about the the nude cultist standing there grinning it utterly terrified me and it, i mean and have you have you ever seen no, anything like that in a film never. And that catches you so off guard and it, it's so it's so I don't know why it's just the combination of nakedness and just this very pleasant smile in the midst of all this darkness and horror it it's just so unsettling. Yes. Yep. I've never seen anything like that. I think it's just because it was on the heels of that other moment that had such a profound like effect on me that I made it sound maybe I would like not talk about this one as highly but just hearing you talk about it I I completely echo everything you're saying and I yeah. you could make a case for it being the best part of the the best horror aspect of the whole movie is just the grinning cultists at the end. Yeah. Oh yeah. So yeah. So Annie is very vigorously sawing her own head off. Again, uh, great practical effects here. Yep. You, you know, like they could have gone the lazy route and done, you know, like CGI blood or whatever. No, no, no. It's all it's all very grounded. It's all very practical, um, and that it just really lends to the, like the horror of it. Yep. Um, Peter can't handle this. Uh, they're also naked cultists in the attic, with really no. And they recourse. wave at him. They wait again. They're they're not charging him. They're not attacking him. They're just very pleasantly smiling. They wave at him. He jumps out the window. Yes. And then one thing you don't like happens where I a shadow like passes over him, and then a flutter of light kind of follows him out the window and goes into Peter. 
Hey everyone, he's Pyman now. Yeah. Get it? He, the light was Pyman. He get he gets up, does the tongue click thing, and goes into the treehouse, following his mother's decapitated body. Not the head. The the rest of her body floats up and goes into the treehouse, while a bunch of grinning naked cultists watch in the trees. By this point, I'm expecting the grinning na- naked cultists. It's still creepy. It didn't freak me out as much once we So, uh, something I found out is that in the original screenplay, the cultists were wearing red robes. I'm glad that they changed it. I am so glad that they changed it. It's such I, a I bold it's, choice. And it, it still would have been creepy. It still would have been good, but... yeah it would have been really good and i think it it kind of would it kind of lends into what they're doing really because what they're doing is kind of giving life to to paimon it's sort of this like birth and i think it would make sense then that the cultists are mirroring that by being naked like you know this is a birth for them a birth for their group their movement whatever it is that they're doing right and so Peter goes up into the treehouse. He sees a bunch of cultists bowing. He sees the decapitated corpse of his mother, and who's actually still twitching, I noticed, uh, slightly. And his grandmother bowing to a kind of a bigger version of one of those types of, like, DIY statue toy-like things that Charlie was putting together. Yeah, only instead of a bird's head, it is Charlie's head. Yes, and it has a crown. It does have a crown. The other thing I noticed uh, that uh, I noticed maybe the third time I watched this is that there is a cage with a bird. Yeah, a lot, a live bird next to it. I I have no idea what that means. I don't know either, and I actually never looked up. I meant to the second time I watched the movie because I don't think I noticed it the first time I watched it, um, and I just forgot about it, even though I saw it again last night. Um, and then, so what happens next, right before the very end of this movie, is honestly, if I've criticized a couple things about this movie, I do basically think this movie is perfect, though. I mean, it's not beyond criticism, of course. And there are certain things I think that could could make it a little little tiny bit better. Um, really, th- this end part was the only complaint that I had and I don't know what I would, I guess I would have maybe ended the movie sooner because what what happens is Joan explains essentially everything in a speech to him they call him Charlie now and then they call him Payman and they say you know we corrected your first female body and a little bit more kind of just about how it everything is like led to this moment and how they're going to worship him forever and I just think it's a little too much explaining to happen at the very end of the movie. And I maybe could have used just a little bit less information. Yeah. Yeah. I think they could have trimmed it. And if she said, if she said only hail payment, your female body has been corrected. Yes. Done. That would have been, I think enough. I though, <laughs> I'm, it's funny that that's what you noticed. I noticed that like, this is their, their seemingly like their God, right? Yep. And they just give him this weird, like, paper Burger King Kids Club crown. Hey, you don't know what payments <laughs> into. <laughs> and I'm like, you guys, like, you couldn't spring for, like, gold and jewels? Like, you couldn't all pitch in and get him a real crown? Maybe he's beyond that. He's not a materialistic kind of demon. Uh, okay. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but, yeah, the, the film ends. I, I do think it's a very wise choice that they have Peter say not a single word. Yes. Um, I'm very leading glad to, they again, did that. We don't really know, you know, what's going on in Peter's head. How much is he Peter anymore? Is it all Pyman now that Pyman's in the correct body? Yeah. 
who who knows and who knows where we go from here um i think it's interesting that ari aster has ended both of his major feature films with characters you know staring cryptically into the camera while while a bunch of other people kind of worship them yeah yeah sort of they're 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 revered by a group of people that they did not know previously really um which is kind of interesting yeah so we will we will talk about midsummer one day can't wait but that is that is the plot that's hereditary that's hereditary yeah um so we kind of talked a little bit about what works um and what doesn't is there anything else to add to either of those what works or what doesn't i i kind of definitely made my uh issues known yeah i i mean i i I, what else can i say you know there's this this movie kind of just never takes his foot off the gas but not in this kind of like frantic frantic hectic way it's just this constant like pulse of dread that it maintains throughout the entire movie until it goes completely bananas in the final like 20 minutes and I just think it's very rarely do you see that kind of control, um, that kind of Agreed. execution. And I'll say the the three issues that I had. I mean, they're me thinking, really thinking about things that you know weren't perfect. Yeah. The this is a phenomenal film. Even though I had these issues, they're they're minor. Yeah. Um, truly minor. Yeah. So. And we kind of touched um, on what, what we think doesn't work, kind of peppered that in throughout. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Is it time to explore this movie uh, a little bit more? Let's, let's explore the world of Hereditary. Before, Can we just like knock this one out really quick? If This one in particular. Would you want to live in the world of this movie? I absolutely don't. I don't want to live oh in a movie God. where payment exists. No. <laughs> or these well, okay. Actually, actually, yes. Yes, I do. And here's why. Okay. So every, every movie where, uh, like any, let's say, exorcism film, those especially, or, you know, paranormal film where there are ghosts or demons, et cetera, et cetera, um, that is proof that God in the afterlife and the devil, all those things exist, right? So in heredit in the cosmology of hereditary, Paimon exists. You know, one of the lords of hell exists, which presumably means God exists, mm-hmm. right? So we have actual tangible proof that there is a God and an afterlife. <laughs> wow. So I would like to live in this world just because Way to spin that. I, I wouldn't be on Paimon's side. I would definitely go to church all the time and I would like become a monk and I would do all that stuff because there's definitive proof in the hereditary world that if demons exist, presumably God exists. So in some ways, I, I think I'd, I would be down. Okay. So let me, I'm going to twist this question a little bit. Let's say when we ask, would you want to live in the world this, of this movie or a video game when we talk about video games? Let's say you get to decide knowing everything you know going in. You get to make the decision to go into that world. Now, let's say you get transported to that world, but your mind, your your memory of what happens in that movie and in its world are erased. You just get to live okay. in it. What okay. what what do you say then? <laughs> uh, no. Okay. No. 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 Yeah. Um. Yeah, I absolutely would not. Uh. It, it, I but, mean, they have a nice house. It's a also Charlie is a dope ass treehouse. It is a really great house. And can we just say? It's a great horror movie house. There are a lot of great horror movie houses, and and it's there's a lot of horror movies that make very heavy emphasis of the house as a as oh as a character, uh, you know what I mean? Like another character in the movie. 
like The Conjuring does it, uh, The Shining makes the hotel, you know, Amityville Horror. But I also think, yet like along with a lot of other horror tropes, despite how incredible of a house this is, I don't think the movie rubs your face in that. Yeah, I would say that's fair. I I like the house. The house has a has a very. Um... Yeah, I don't know how to put my finger quite on it. It has, it has, it has a feeling of uh, feeling a little bit. Uh, I don't even know, like slightly gothic. Mm. Uh, it has big, big vaulted ceilings and things like that, and has an attic, but not overtly. Yeah, um, I, I think it's a good horror movie house without you know rubbing your face in it. Yeah. So, did you find any interesting whoa, fan whoa, whoa. fiction? Hey, 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 hey. Don't, don't. Well, first of all, I did. Oh, you're right. I'm, I'm jumping ahead. I'm se- yeah. Second of all, speaking of video games, I'm too. Uh, I'm too excited to find out if you find. Yeah. That. So, I, I think there could definitely be a hereditary video game. Yes. Um. I, I think it would be a really cool like point and click adventure game. Interesting. I like yeah. that a lot. I like that a yeah. lot. I was thinking something along the lines of like PT or like the Resident Evil reboot for Resident Evil 7. I mean, obviously, the Resident Evil 7 has like kind of a cult family involved. I, I, this is the kind of game where I would want there to be very minimal interaction with other human beings. The kind of like game, you know, when I think point and click, I'm almost thinking like Mist, where you're in a, in a place with no one and you're maybe you know later on during the game whether it be a point and click or first person or some some sort you eventually do see things in the background like maybe naked grinning cultists that you catch like out of the corner of your eye for a second and then you're like oh you, you know the kind of game that makes you feel like you're going a little bit crazy yeah i so i was thinking about this and i thought what what would be a really cool way to do it is what if it was a point-and-click adventure game with four campaigns, and you went through each of the campaigns starting with Charlie. Okay. And let's say you follow Charlie's campaign until all of a sudden the screen just cuts out to black, and you don't know why. Mm-hmm. Then you play, uh, let's say, Gabriel Byrne's campaign, and then you see, oh, it went to black because Charlie died. Oh, wow. And then the plot continues, and then all of a sudden cuts to black when he throws the book in. And you don't know what happens. And then it cuts to um, Tony Collette's campaign. Yeah. Same thing. And then finally Peter's campaign where you see the full picture. You get all the way to the end. And that's a way where by replaying and reliving like these same scenes but from different perspectives, you would kind of gather clues and kind of build up to kind of figure out what was going on overall. I like that a lot. I like that a lot. I, I... I appreciate the amount of thought you just put into that because I, I, you know, when I was thinking about what I was saying, I was imagining it as not literally kind of like playing out the game or playing out the movie, which is really what this question was intended to be, uh, this kind of category. But I, I was thinking of more of just like maybe you're Annie or you're like a character that's in the world of this movie tangentially and have to like deal with like payment or like this, these cultists, like a secondary character that we never ended up meeting in the movie. But I, but if, if we're, if we're going for like a quite, you know, an adaptation, quite literal adaptation of this movie into a game, I'm a hundred percent behind your idea. I mean, I I'm down with your idea too. Like we don't have to do a one-to-one adaptation. Like I think it would be cool. Like, you know, what if we had a game that had to do with the cult or, you know, things that we don't, that kind of happen off screen. Yeah. Like, I think that would be cool as well. Yeah. Um, I was just thinking like, 
this this movie works so well upon multiple viewings because you notice all these little extra things. Yep. And so I was trying to think of a way, like, how in a game could you kind of revisit the same moments but see different things? And so I was like, well, what if you had different campaigns that just ended when the characters died and then you would just jump, you know, restart with a new one and then, you know, again, get all these perspectives. I like it. Yeah. 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 So uh, why don't we move on to Fan Fiction Corner? All right. Uh, are, you, are you ready? I'm always ready. So uh, I had serious doubts that hereditary fan fiction existed, but I don't know why I had doubts because the internet exists. <laughs> and I, I, of course there's hereditary fan fiction. Of course. So there, there's, a, there's a large variety. Um, <laughs> let me... <laughs> It kind of falls into a couple broad categories. Okay. Um, the first one is just retelling the story mm-hmm. um, in various different ways, either from one character's perspective or uh, my favorite. Um, it's just a beat for beat, line for line retelling of the entire story from beginning to end. But it replaces all of the characters of the film with various members of the Sherlock Holmes family. What? <laughs> yep. <laughs> and I think it's like 38,000 words. <laughs> it's 39,840 words split across 16 chapters. I just, I, and just I'm, what and I I'm, thought. And I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. It is... Word for word, the entire script with zero changes made aside from all of the characters being replaced with the characters from Sherlock Holmes. I mean, that's just a quick fine replace, right? But no, it's not because it's not in screenplay form. It's in narrative form. Oh, 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 God. It is a narrative. Oh, God. Yeah. Um... The amount of work that must have gone into this is staggering. Staggering. And the only thing I can question is why? Why? You know, I am really astounded by the amount of effort that people will put put in. You know, I feel like every time we do Fan Fiction Corner, I'm going to be continuously blown away at, at... you know, I, I, you know, you would think that writing um, a fan fiction about Mario, from his perspective of Super Mario Sunshine, is where the internet has lost its mind. But I would have never, ever in a million years, you give me a million guesses, I wouldn't have guessed what you just said. I just, I what, what about Sherlock Holmes? What, what about the characters of Sherlock Holmes? I just I don't understand like what what I don't know I don't know I don't, I, I I don't know I I don't know it, it, I, it's it's I'm trying to think of something that would make more sense but still make no sense like the monsters just have the have them be the monsters. that would uh, that would oddly make more sense <laughs> it would, than it this would. that would make more sense yeah so that that's one category is basically retelling the film either from different perspectives or. Um, replacing the characters with Sherlock Holmes. Uh, The other big category is, um, unsurprisingly, uh, hereditary Midsummer crossovers. Okay, yeah, not surprising. Um, 
Yeah, which is kind of interesting. Um, I I read one that was. <laughs> I'll just read you uh, the the paragraph blurb about it. Uh, I found it interesting. Um, Danny Arter has been lost and found after faithfully joining the Arga community in Sweden with Pelle. Danny finds that she's most certainly not the same woman she used to be. Mm-hmm. Torn between her feelings for Pele and her unabashed guilt for Christian's death, she must return to America during the winter solstice uh, with the May Queen one last, or with the other May Queens one last time to discover the whereabouts of an ancient cult that the elders believe have finally found the host for one of the eight kings of hell, Hyman. Oh that is so, it's so sloppily <laughs> hold on, put together. Hold on, hold on. When she arrives in the lush greenery of Utah, however, the May Queens investigate the fateful demise of the cursed Grand family. And when she meets Pyman herself, Danny must quickly piece together what happened to Peter Graham to bring him back to Sweden. She just does what? not expect to. She does not expect to discover that Pyman is, in fact, Peter Graham himself, a broken young man who has also experienced trauma, traumatized horrors at the behest of a, of a cult that controlled him. As she and Peter go closer together and begin to discover the truth of fate's purpose in putting them through these <laughs> horrors, Danny must make the ultimate decision between fighting for the only family she has left or fighting for control of a life that might join another. Dot, 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 in all capital letters, Solstice, which is presumably the title oh of this project. God. Now, I love this on basically every level. I love that we're going from being a terrifying cult the hargus are now this globe <laughs> globe trotting group of like i don't know x-men x-files investigators <laughs> the, the the may queens are like these paranormal detectives i guess for some reason why do they care about the eight kings of hell <laughs> like I was just about to shit all over this idea, and now you've sold me on it. This is this is hilarious. I mean, it, I I love it's, it. It's sloppily put together. I mean, it's like duct taping the two movies together. Uh, but come on, I mean, it's okay. It's like so. This is uh, maybe a controversial opinion, uh, but the original Alien movie, I, I adore it. Ten out of ten. Yeah, great, great. Uh, Aliens, I hate. I think it's incredibly stupid. I think James Cameron took a very tight claustrophobic horror film and was like i don't know what if we just blew it out and added guns and soldiers yeah i it's it's just like what if we just made it as stupid as possible and that's i feel like what this is (laughs) so on your point about aliens i i actually felt the exact same way for a while i resented why i don't like james cameron in general but i kind of resented the movie for taking something like taking horror and trying to turn it into action um i've Actually, since come around on it, we don't have to talk about that now. But um, I, I think Aliens is actually fantastic. Um, but I would really love to hear more of your thoughts another time on why it sucks. I I don't think it sucks. I think I I I think technically it's a good film. I think I just resent it because I think uh, it just took Alien and com- yeah, it just took Alien and I I feel like parts of the plot brought it down to the lowest common dumbest denominator. Like I don't know, what if a bunch of stupid soldiers shot guns at the aliens? And but again, that's besides yeah. the point. But I feel like this fan fiction has big aliens. It's energy. one degree away from the joke of you know at the end of Midsommar, uh Nick Fury Samuel Jackson comes and recruits her into the Avengers. <laughs> yes, like that's, yes, that's what yes. it is. It's exactly that. Um, so, th- so that's a category is fan, f- and that's not the only one. There are multiple crossovers of Hereditary Midsummer, which 
I get it. You know, uh, yeah. there's a lot of similarities. And to the idea that Danny, a lot of them have Danny and uh, Peter hooking up, which again <laughs> makes sense because, you know, they're both young and she's a girl and he's a boy and, mm-hmm. you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the largest category by far, uh, would you care to guess? I, I wouldn't want to waste the time because I would assume that I will not get it. Well, I think you would if you knew anything about fan fiction. Um, incest between Charlie and Peter. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of that. A lot of incest between Charlie and Peter. All right. That's... I don't, we don't need to hear anything more about that. Uh, no, I started reading some of them and, uh, I had to stop and I will not read any of them because, um, they're horrible. Uh, I will read, I will, I'm just going to read. So on, uh, different fan fiction sites, they have, uh, tags on them. So you can kind of, um, see what you're getting into before you read them or you can search stories by tag. Uh, I'm just going to read you the tags on this one. And again, this is kind of one of the less horrifying tags. So the tags on this story, graphic depiction of violence, underage, King Pyman, Peter. <laughs> King Pyman is a tag. King Pyman is a tag. Nightmares, dream sex, dubious consent, first time, supernatural elements, demon human relationships, light bondage, choking, anal fingering, anal sex. <laughs> during canon that's one of the less horrifying group of tags oh okay well then i definitely don't i don't even think i want to hear the rest of them no when we're done i will say i will say to just to to brighten the mood before i go or not before i go before you're just gonna leave (laughs) i'm just gonna leave i'm just i'm just watching you've ruined you've ruined this for me i can't do this uh one of the other fun crossovers i found was a crossover between hereditary and donnie darko (laughs) you know what i could buy that more i could actually buy that more Uh, than the hereditary midsommar crossover i would i would though like to explain like is there time travel involved because donnie darko takes place in the 80s well there must be then yeah, I suppose. Pyman does uh, time is nothing for Pyman. But but as usual, fan fiction corner did not disappoint. So it, it definitely horrified. What would your fan fiction be? Well, before before we do that, okay. I just question like with every time I, I, I think about fan fiction, I think um should it exist? And what I mean by right. that is is this world rich enough to support added content? Like the Harry Potter, for example, you know, J.K. Rowling famously is very supportive of the Harry Potter fan fiction community. That's a franchise where I fully believe, sure, there should be fan fiction. It's so big. There's so many ideas. There's so many characters. Why not? Um, something like Lord of the Rings. Absolutely. Middle Earth is such a big, massive world. Tolkien barely scratched the surface. Yep. I think I think it's definitely appropriate for fans to, you know, jump in and use that as kind of a playground. Do you feel like the hereditary verse, uh, you know, warrants fan fiction? No. 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 That said, I know what my fan fiction would be. And maybe this doesn't qualify as fan fiction. It's, and maybe I'm cheating a little bit. It's something that I don't want to see in the movie, but I think it would be fun to explore in a little side story directly related to the events of the movie. Actually happening. It's like a scene that would have happened that we didn't get to see. And I... Uh, do, do tell. I want to see the scene of Peter explaining to his parents what happened to Charlie. 
Oh God, why? I just I I've I've thought that every time I've watched this, I'm like, oh, like no. I, at first when I first watched it, I was like, I want that scene in the movie. And then I'm like, no, this that would be terrible. Ah, oh, that would I couldn't handle that. Yeah. Um, that's a bummer. Yeah, sorry to bum you out. Yeah, yeah. Um, my fan fiction, I would say I don't think it should exist. So let's like lean real heavily into it. The movie wisely ends uh, right as Peter uh, becomes taken over by Pyman. So what happens next? Like, do they just right, go right. down? I, I want the what what happens next. I want a fan fiction set like a hundred years in the future oh. where King Pyman like pilots a gold mech and like has reduced the world to like a Final Fantasy VI-esque world of ruin. <laughs> and I want like the, the struggling band of survivors living in the ruins trying to overthrow Pyman. That, that's what I want. Uh, it's not the direction I thought you were going to go, but I, I like that more. I, I just would have thought it's, I think it's always funny when you have that kind of like moment and it's like, okay, so seeing like, it's very like epic in a way it's very, there's a lot of like ceremony to it. And just what happens after they say, hail Pyman. Do they just all go down like naked one by one from the treehouse? Like, well, what, does, okay, does, so, does Peter stay up there? Like, what what, so, what happens? So that's the thing. So uh, does he my, go back to school? Dad, right. So my dad, I love my dad. He's great, but um, his like sense of media literacy and like what makes her a great story is maybe not <laughs> the best. And so we had this conversation a couple weeks ago, but. He is very much of that mindset of like, well, what happens next? Yeah. Like, if he hasn't seen Hereditary, but I guarantee you, after watching it, like, when it ends, he would immediately turn and be like, well, what happens now? And how to explain to him that the what happens next would be so stupid and not worth watching that the the director wisely cut it off. Yep. I just, I, I, I just love the idea of indulging that to, like, the nth degree, like, Okay, what is a world ruled by Pyman like? Like, I just want Pyman, like, Peter piloting a gold Pyman-shaped mech and, like, just having a, like, tower of ruin, like, Kefka, and just, like, I just want, like, <laughs> that's really what I want. Well, obviously, what actually happens is, uh, much like Trask uh, Industries in X-Men, there's, like, a, a post-apocalyptic world where Pyman's, um sentinels are roaming the world trying to destroy all special people <laughs> and obviously no behind no, the, no no behind the scenes is uh what, danny right yes it, yes no the uh, danny and the hargus are like the x-men who have to like they are the underground guerrilla warriors fighting payment exactly Ah, uh, all right ari call us yeah <laughs> i'll work for free i don't care yeah. but pay me though that'd be that'd be preferable um so I was about to say, what are we doing next week? But I don't think we agreed on what we were going to do next week. Well, next week you're in Guatemala, so we've got some time. Yeah. Ne- I mean, next week, it, when people are listening to this, uh, it will not be just an episode of silence to honor my time in Guatemala. Um, but uh, yeah, the next episode, we have not agreed to that yet. Uh, but a, pr- a video game probably, right? Because we're going to yeah, kind of trade off. I think so. Speaking of that, are you? What, are you, what have you been playing recently? What have you been watching? Yeah. So uh, I've been spending a lot of time moving into, uh, you know, unpacking stuff in the condo. Um, I only, we only really hooked up the TV and the systems today. Uh, so again, I've been playing 3DS. Last time I told you I was playing Bravely Second, uh, and I have been continuing that. Uh, I, I've been having a real itch for, uh, Monster Hunter Rise, which okay. is coming out. Not uh, a series that I Switch. have much interest in playing, but it... So that's the thing. I have tried so hard to get into every Monster Hunter game and every single one I bounced off of. 
but uh, maybe this is the one. No, maybe. But no, but uh, so I bought Monster Hunter 4 for 3DS, and I've been toying around with that. Um, uh, and I've been thinking about, I'm going to bring my 3DS to Guatemala, so maybe after a week of playing in Guatemala, I will be prepared for Rise. Very nice. Um, so h- how about you? What have you been playing? Uh, I'm still playing Hollow Knight. Uh, I rewatched the Studio Ghibli film uh, Whisper of the Heart with my fiance Miranda. Uh, she loves that movie very dearly. I liked it the first time I saw it. I really like it now. I think it kind of is just going to get better every time I watch it. It's another one of those kind of like slice of life elements. There's not as much of a fantasy element as there are in other Studio Ghibli movies, um, which is a kind of a nice break from the more fantasy heavy ones. And uh, most notably, I rewatched some, but not all, of the movie Caligula, which I'm not sure if you're familiar with that movie. It's not a movie I I'd ever want to do on this podcast. I swore I'd never watch it again the first time I watched it, and I forced myself to watch the whole thing the first time I saw it. But I had two friends. I have two friends. Uh, they're still my friends. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say, it'd be, it's, it'd be very indicative of the viewing of the film if they're former friends. I, I have two friends who are very kind of getting even bigger into Roman history. Uh, so we watched, and they are, they are watching too. I think they're watching without me too. I've, I've already seen it many times, but watching I, Claudius. Uh, the BBC show from like the seventies, which is fantastic. Oh, I thought that was the spinoff of the show iCarly. It is no, you know, it is actually that iCarly is a spiritual uh, successor to iCarly. Okay, um, but they heard about Caligula, and I said nothing at first because I thought it'd be really funny to see them fall into this. And I thought, you know what, I'm gonna tell them exactly what that movie is, and it's still gonna blow them away. And they're still going to be like, this is the worst piece of shit I've ever watched. And so I told them. I warned them. And then I said, you know what? I'll watch it with you. And we watched. I, I, I made, think I made it two hours in. It's like a three-hour movie. And then I left. Uh, and they kept. They watched the whole thing. And then they were just like, that was the worst movie I've ever seen in my life. Um, and it is. It's one of the worst movies I've ever seen. Uh, we don't have to talk about it very long now. But it is a just an abysmal piece of trash that has some incredibly good actors in it. <laughs> fair enough uh i would say those are usually fun but yeah everything i've heard about caligula is that it's not even worth the uh very long amount of time it's horrendous uh, yeah yeah, yeah. it's it's unwatchable yeah so uh well everyone thank you for listening yep thank you very Um, much we will we will be back probably with a video game uh not sure which one um but yeah uh, thanks for listening uh it's been fun i've been wanting to talk about this movie for a very long time me too uh, i'm I'm glad we got to it thank you aaron thank you james Hey everybody, it's James here. Just want to thank my brothers Dave and Mike again. Dave wrote the intro music to this podcast, and Mike wrote the outro music. Both very video game inspired, and they are incredible musicians. Thanks again to them, and thank you for listening.